Hello everyone and welcome back to the Future Tech for Education series on the EdTech podcast with support from Pearson. This week we're looking at assessment. Recording our progress as learners is, of course, important to both our own sense of achievement and mastery, but also important to external players such as employers wishing to understand our relative expertise alongside that of others. But do traditional forms of assessment really achieve these aims, or are claims that tests and exams are tick box or bubble filling exercises based on a solid foundation? In the UK, for example, we know that marking is one of the chief time drains on teachers overwhelmed by workload. Shifts to a feedback model have been patchy, with many schools still demanding specifically handwritten marked feedback. On the student side, increasing numbers of exams and tests have been recognised for their negative impact on mental health and anxiety. A 2017 report by the UK Commons Cross-Party Education Committee showed that high-stakes standardised testing was damaging teaching and learning in UK primary schools and encouraged a reduction of what was reported in school annual performance tables going forward. Popular educator blogs such as that run by Teacher Toolkit are often highly vocal of reducing unnecessary marking practices. So, can we do better in the way we approach assessment whilst also measuring progress? Here's Dr. Christine DeSherbo, Vice President of Education Research at Pearson to help us find out more. Hi, thanks for having me. So, very excited to move on to episode 6 to 10, which we're collaborating on. What are your current thoughts on assessment? And quite interested to know, because obviously your your history within schools was assisting perhaps learners that didn't do so well out of the traditional forms of schooling and assessment. So one of the things we talk about in this episode is around invisible or shall we say stealth assessment. So yeah, what are you kind of what are your current thoughts on all of that? I think the the biggest change that we see is really around the ability of students now working in digital environments to be able to understand what they know and can do based on their interactions in the environments. Because with a computer, we can capture the data about what they're doing as they interact. So we don't necessarily have to say, wait, stop, take a test, because that's the only way we're going to know what you can do. Instead, we can think about how do we create activities that tell us what students know and can do, sometimes in a more authentic way, sometimes in a more fun way, uh, that lets us get that kind of information in ways that don't look perhaps like a traditional test. And so because of that, that's where that kind of term invisible comes from. It's not necessarily that the students don't know that we're gathering that data. In fact, that can be an important thing, but that it's that it doesn't feel like they're doing a test, but that learning and assessment have kind of become one seamless activity. If, if that experience is invisible, you know, perhaps the students don't know about it, but it's not, it's not the usual experience of perhaps sweaty palms and quiet formal assessment rooms with people walking up and down to measure that. Is, is there any merit in having that kind of older traditional formal assessment um, when we think about building resilience and arguments around, you know, generation snowflake and that kind of thing? Or do you think that's just old styles of thinking? I think the thing we need to do is look at what is the goal that we have in mind. So what is the goal of assessment? The goal of assessment should really be defined before we can figure out what the best way to assess is. So in some cases, the goal of assessment is to 
inform the teacher and the student about the student's progress and where they are. In other cases, the goal of assessment is to be able to inform school accountability issues. Um, in other cases, it's to make uh, high-stakes decisions about things like uh, the student's college and university entrance or, you know, their proficiency in English to engaging in college-level uh, college work. So depending on what the goal is, there may be different tools that we should use to accomplish that. Uh, so there likely potentially could still be a role for that more kind of formal assessment for some of those really high stakes decisions, but that's still a little bit up in the air. The reason I say that is because in when we talk about assessment, we talk about some key things. Uh, validity, does this really assess what we think it does? Reliability, does it do it in a, a stable and consistent way? And fairness, so how fair is, is this assessment? And when we look at some of these, for instance, simulation and game-based assessments, on one hand, they look sometimes pretty valid because we're asking students to do activities like they would do in the real world that seem maybe a little more like the kinds of skills we're assessing than perhaps a, a multiple choice does. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of other noise, for back, lack of a better word, when someone's playing a game. They're not always just focused on that one particular skill we're assessing, but they might also be focused on killing the zombies or whatever that may be. So we, we need to be careful before we just jump on the bandwagon to make sure we've got the solid research um, that we're really getting at the skills that we want to assess with these new forms of assessment before we you know, do a, do a wholesale shift from one to the other. How many uh, schools are still using traditional forms of assessment and how many are you know, moving towards perhaps a hybrid model of a bit of both and how many are you know, really going in for games-based learning assessment and other ways of doing it? So there's really no good formal way of getting those numbers on a large scale. We do know that almost in, in the states, for example, every state still requires those high stakes end of year assessments in certain grades and levels. Um, so that is absolutely still what's going on. That said, we think there's some good survey data out about how many teachers are using games generally in their classrooms. So we know that at some place, and we look at the primary grades, some place generally around 60% of, of teachers will report that they use games in their classrooms at least once a month. But those generally often aren't tied to game-based assessments. But it's starting to move in that direction. And outside of games-based learning and simulations, are there any other forms of neuroassessment uh, models or techniques that you're researching into? Other things that, that come across are other kinds of uh, just what we call authentic assessments. So, you know, what are the other kinds of tasks we can have people do when we think of the post-secondary space? Um, you know, just asking people, say, in an accounting course to be doing the tasks of an accountant um, and what they're doing. So that's on kind of the basic level. On the uh, far out horizon, there are people not where in my team, but kind of, you know, also in the, the research world, looking at things like, you know, can we look at biofeedback? Can we understand, you know, more about how students are, what they think and feel by all of their biological changes and uh, looking at EEGs and uh, skin, galvanic skin responses and, and those kinds of things. And that's still pretty far in the future, I think, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. 
So bringing us back to the current and the present, I've just been editing the episode with the Director of Information Services from the University of York. And one of her comments was, you know, how crazy is that computer science students are still required in an exam and an assessment to use sort of handwritten responses. I wondered what you're seeing in terms of whether there's any move away from um, handwritten responses in assessment. And also we looked in one of the previous episodes at the role of voice technology and that seems to be gaining pace. So whether that will have an impact in in the uh, space of assessment as well. Yeah, so I think there is movement both in moving from handwriting to just computer text entry. Uh, There's also movement just away from having everything be a written response (laughs) to being able to track activity. The big advantage from moving from handwriting to a typewritten response is that there is the technology to do computer scoring of written responses has made huge advances. And we can be just as good as human scorers um, at scoring essays. And it's much easier to do that if they are written uh, into, you know, typed in as opposed to having to figure out the handwriting. And um, the advantage of computer scoring is also they don't, for instance, have things like fatigue (laughs) that certainly anyone who's graded a stack of essays has felt. On the other hand, we know that people are very skeptical of having essays be computer scored. So I think the issue there is not the technology as much as the acceptance of the technology in doing that kind of scoring. So that's one piece of it. And then the biggest places I've seen voice being used is actually in assessment of uh, language. So there's some products actually out in the market that use spoken words to assess English language proficiency. So students speak into their iPads and are scored on, you know, their speaking ability and all of those kind of expressive language components that we might want to get at as someone's learning a new language. I think that's also moving along and is, like I said, actually in some existing products at this point. So I think there's a lot we can do if we start thinking beyond kind of our traditional models of assessment. And yeah, just finally then, so, I mean, we've we've spoken about some of the pushbacks you had. So for example, perhaps it's more cultural resistance to some of the newer forms of assessment. What are some of those pushbacks? And are they things like plagiarism, if you're talking about typing answers and that kind of thing? And also, what are the pros and cons? So who benefit from traditional forms of assessment versus who might benefit from some of these newer forms of assessment as well? The resistance that we see to new forms of assessment really depends on who you're talking to. So in some cases, for instance, this past year I presented the Association of Test Publishers, which is the group that really makes a lot of the tests that you're familiar with in terms of the the high stakes testing that we do. And they also, a lot of the people there are doing what is called in the field psychometric research. So that is research around the reliability and validity and fairness of assessments. And so they're very concerned about, do we have that kind of evidence for these new forms of assessment? Um, Then there's the the folks that are more concerned about the role of technology. And that can range from everything to being concerned if we're gathering all this data about student interactions, who owns that data and where is it being stored and what do we know about it? 
And so that's certainly some of the, the concern about some of these new forms of assessment. And then folks that are concerned about the role of the teacher and the teacher's judgment. And so when we're talking particularly about assessments in the classroom, thinking about how this kind of assessment can inform teaching and, and making sure that it's not actually overriding the judgment of the teachers. So there are certainly uh, many things to think about as we think about changing it, how we think about assessment. Hmm. Imagine a world where tests were fun. Why do we punish ourselves in situations of extreme hand-wringing? Are traditional exams a necessary part of going beyond our generation snowflake selves and building some grit and resilience, or are they archaic? Why are employers ditching annual appraisals in favour of continual review? And why are leading entrepreneurs pushing a design thinking approach of confident experimentation and iteration that doesn't sit comfortably with the succeed or fail dichotomy of exams? Let's dig a bit further with Dr. Valerie Shute, Mac and F.E. Campbell Tyner Endowed Professor of Education in the Educational Psychology and Learning Systems Department at Florida State University. So welcome, Valerie. Hi, Sophie. So first question, how is invisible or stealth assessment playing out in games-based learning? And what are the criteria needed to make this a really mainstream approach? I think it's easiest if I can start by defining stealth assessment. Stealth assessment refers to evidence-based assessments that are woven directly and invisibly into the fabric of the gaming environment. And then during gameplay, learners are naturally producing all sorts of rich sequences of actions, you know, while they're performing various complex tasks. And in the process, they're drawing on the very competencies that we want to assess. So... For the last 10 years or so, we've been designing and developing stealth assessments in a whole bunch of different games, Um, both homemade games like Physics Playground, where we've got stealth assessments running concurrently for physics understanding, creativity, and persistence. Um, And we've also embedded it into some commercial games like Plants vs. Zombies 2, where we embedded some stealth assessment for problem-solving skills and Portal 2 for measuring spatial skills, persistence, and problem-solving. We recently uh, developed some stealth assessment in a game called Variant Limits for Calculus Understanding. So the very first step in all of these efforts is to establish the validity of the in-game measures. So in other words, are we in fact accurately measuring what we intend to measure? So I could say I'm measuring creativity or physics understanding and physics playground, but am I? So the answer turns out to be yes, we are measuring what we intend to measure. And across various studies, we've been finding significant correlations between our in-game estimates from the stealth assessments of competencies um, with relevant and validated external measures. So um, after we established validity of these in-game stealth assessment and visible kinds of measures, we can then begin to incorporate learning supports into the game. Um, And that's exactly what we're doing right now. We are seeing improvements of learning um, across a whole range of knowledge and skills as a function of playing different games. Now, one other thing, besides providing valid and reliable measures, there's two other bonus goals of stealth assessment, um, and those are to stimulate engagement and also sustain flow of learning. And what I mean is stealth assessments designed to emphasize the view that for learners, assessment is 
it really should be a part of the natural sequence of their interactions with the game or the whatever immersive environment. And this usually involves, you know, exploring and observing and manipulating, testing, evaluating, synthesizing, revising, stuff like that. And given, given the dynamic nature of stealth assessment, it's not surprising that some of its advantages include measuring learner competencies continually and also at various grain sizes. It can adjust task difficulty uh, in light of the learner's current performance and um, also provide ongoing feedback to further enhance learning. From the point of view of stealth assessment versus what might be deemed more traditional assessment and formal assessment, how are the two coexisting at the moment? And do you think there will be a change to formal assessment or do you think these two will sort of coexist in a certain way in, in the near term? Well, in the near term, of course, they're going to coexist. And the reason is because stealth assessment ideas are still in the kind of exploratory you know, stage. Formal, traditional kinds of testing have been around for 100 years. And I think the time is about right for them to go away. And the reason is with stealth assessment, what I just mentioned, is that it, it, it is continuous. So you're accumulating a whole bunch of information about a person relative to whatever skill or knowledge that you're you're interested in. And so it's so much better than you know, than traditional assessments, which are one-stop shops, they come in, they're static, you know, they make a, um, a measurement and, and that's it. But with stealth assessment, it's ongoing. So everything you're doing during the course of, you know, playing a game or participating in a VR experience or whatever is being captured and analyzed in real time. So for now, they can coexist until we have a, a sufficient establishment of you know, the credibility of stealth assessment in order to simply throw the traditional tests away, which would be fine with me. And are you seeing an increase in games which have an educational element, either approaching you about using some of your research or just generally out there? Yeah, yeah. I can remember going to conferences even as recently as 10 years ago. And there'd be, you know, and these are large conferences, educational conferences, and there'd be, you know, a couple of game-based presentations and stuff. And now there's whole tracks and special interest groups and so forth related. So it's really taking off. And from the point of view of, of those who have sat through a, you know, a traditional exam, is there something about tests which you know in the traditional sense test our resolve and character you know and in in this sense should tests be fun or is there something about having that uncomfortable experience which is actually formative in a positive way (laughs) let me start off by saying I guess assessment tends to get a bad rap and 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 that's mainly because people tend to equate assessment with testing Um, but assessment you know, it's kind of an umbrella term, and it, it refers to all this stuff, the collecting and the analyzing and the interpreting of information about a person's understanding and their performance in relation to specific goals, whether it's a driving test or, you know, under, you know, geography test or whatever. So assessment is, it's a general term, and it does include testing as part of it. Now, historically, assessment along the lines of the, you know, typical tests that you're thinking of, specifically summative assessment or standardized testing, um, it's acted as a, as a big barrier rather than a bridge to educational opportunity 
But there's another much more attractive phase of assessment. The main goal is to improve learning um, of knowledge and skills and dispositions. And it's this phase of educational assessment that I, I'm particularly attracted to, that I find exciting and interesting. Um, and it's absolutely critical, you know, in order to support the kinds of learning outcomes and the processes and stuff that's necessary, you know, for us to succeed in the 21st century. So in this case, I'm talking about formative assessment, which can be thought of as assessment for learning, you know, and you've heard the contrast to summative assessment, which is assessment of learning, the kind of one-shot thing that I mentioned earlier. So first and foremost, assessments should be reliable, they have to be valid, and hopefully they're efficient too. You know, I can give you a 40-hour assessment that yields, you know, valuable information, but that's you know, if you had a test that could measure something in an hour, my long one wouldn't be very efficient. So I'd argue that they also, in addition to being reliable, valid, and efficient, um, assessments all should support learning. So I like it. So if, if they happen to be fun as a, as a side effect, then that, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing because if somebody is engaged in something, imagine somebody who couldn't give a crap, you know, while they're taking a test, you know, they, they're, they're simply not engaged. The data that you get from that person and the inferences that are you're building on that are not as good as if somebody was actually functionally engaged in the, you know, assessment process. And that's why performance-based kinds of assessments are, you know, so much more robust. Well, Dr. Valerie Shute, thank you so much. Interestingly, the idea of continual review rather than one-stop shop high-stakes assessment does seem to be picking up pace, both in educational and industry circles. Professor Rose Luckin of UCL Knowledge Lab is developing a cognitive assistant called Colin in the hope that continual data collection on pupils' performance in the classroom will eradicate the need for frequent tests and assessments, relieving the pressure on both teachers and students. So welcome, Rose. Thank you, Sophie. Lovely to be with you. So can you tell us, what is Colin? So Colin is a software, a piece of software that consists of some artificially intelligent programming that is designed to analyze data gathered as students learn in a particular way. At the moment, Colin is quite limited in his capabilities. And over the next few months and years, we're hoping to develop him into a much more sophisticated type of assessment tool. But basically, Colin is an instantiation of what I believe to be the real power of AI when it comes to assessment, in that it's about combining the big data that we can now collect through educational interactions with well-designed artificial intelligence so that we are able to understand more about how our students are learning. And uh, when will Colin be ready? So he's currently in sort of multiple parts, as it were. So when when will he be put together? (laughs) The honest answer to that is it depends on funding. So Colin, as he stands, he's a set of different pieces of software that need to be integrated effectively. And at the current time, we have some funding to do a little bit more work on Colin, but in order to integrate him into a fully fledged Colin, then we need to attract further funding to continue with that work. Then 
yes, we could have Colin put together within the next couple of years. And from like a, an implementation point of view or a cultural point of view, how long do you think it is before cognitive assistants like Colin um, will be used in the mainstream classroom or even the exam room? What kind of time frame do you think that process will take? That's a much harder question to answer, actually, because the technology is the easy bit in comparison to the, the society challenges that one faces when trying to do something very different in an area such as education. Understandably, there is a reticence among certain educators to working with artificially intelligent software systems. And that's something that we need to work hard with educators to ensure that we help them understand enough about what the software is capable of, that they start to feel more comfortable with using it. It's also essential that we engage with educators more actively to get them involved in the process of designing the right kind of assistance for use in schools and colleges. So that's quite interesting because um, this week's episode is about assessment without tests and it sounds like the, the idea is gaining some currency internationally as well. Definitely. There's still a way to go in terms of not just developing the technologies that could allow us to complete really valuable continual assessment of learning without the need to stop and test and making that continual assessment something that's acceptable to educators, to parents and to students. And in the best case scenario, with all of those complexities worked out, how do you see someone like Colin uh, used <laughs> in, in various scenarios? I think there's the potential for something like an assistant framed in, in the way that Colin is framed to be there by your side throughout your learning life. And our learning lives are likely to be much longer in the future than they are now. But it would need a lot of careful thought to ensure that it doesn't become something that traps learners into a particular assessment place, by which I mean we need to recognise that sometimes people do much better than other times. And just because somebody has been performing poorly for a few weeks, we wouldn't want them to be trapped in that poorly performing space. We would want them to be seen as somebody who can come away from that experience and be stronger and for that strength to be something that's valued. So I think there's a long way to go in terms of deciding as a society what it is we want to assess, as well as deciding how we want to assess it, if we're going to have this kind of continual formative assessment. Because one of the really important aspects of the work that I try and do through Colin is concerned with opening up what I often refer to as the black box of learning to help teachers, but also the learners themselves understand more about how well they're processing information, how well they're understanding something, where their strengths are, where their weaknesses, where they need help, and where they're, where they're doing particularly well. And this is important, you know, from early age to much older. You know, it is fundamentally essential that we develop an accurate understanding of our own knowledge, that we develop an accurate understanding of our own skills, and we're able to regulate the way that we react in certain situations so that we can learn effectively. And so being able to show people the evidence from their own interactions and being able to scaffold them to understand what 
the data means in terms of how well they're doing and to be able to offer them support so that they develop these all important what I call metacognitive skills and abilities. That's really where Colin's strength lies for me. It's in helping people to understand themselves better so that they can become the most effective learner they can be. And it's really a kind of a sideshow, if you like, that as a consequence of trying to do that, we can also perform the assessment task in a way that's more fit for purpose than the current stop and test standalone assessment types of approaches. With increasing studies on 21st century skills, including the PISA table's new criteria of global competency and Pearson and Nestor's recent study of future skills for 2030 putting a premium on fluency of ideas, active learning and originality, the rote learning of traditional assessment may be more challenged than ever. This brings in an interesting question. How do we go about measuring collaboration and isolating the impact of individual endeavour in group work? Here's Alina von Davier, researcher at ACT Next, to talk about her work in this space. So welcome, Alina. Thank you. Hello, Sophie. First up, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to research into this area? Sure. So my background is in mathematics. I am originally from Romania with a master in mathematics. Then I got my PhD in Germany on applied mathematics and then I came to the United States and uh, got immersed in assessment and for the past 10 years or so I've been working on um, how we can make the assessment more um, in sync with the way people learn and work and actually teach. Both the student side and the teacher side are uh, complaining about the way of assigning the credit for the work done collaboratively. And then a few years ago, I realized that I should probably start looking not in the results of the collaboration, but into the process of collaboration. And with the advances of in technology, I actually was able to do exactly that. So we are looking at how people actually interact with each other. More specifically, we are looking at the way one's actions and discourse would depend on the partner's uh, actions and discourse. And we look at that from a mathematical perspective. So we started looking at these actions and the dependencies among them from the perspective of a mathematical model that accounts for interdependencies, such as models like that can be found in finances or can be found um, in meteorology, for example. That's very, very interesting. So from a collaboration point of view, you, you may assign a certain weighting to how collaborative a certain teammate may have been and how that may have impacted your own positive collaboration. Yes, I mean, it, it does matter quite a lot on how people behave during the collaborative event uh, and which part or of their interaction is more supportive of the collaborative effort as well as of the success of, uh, of the results of collaboration. So if it is a collaborative problem solving, for example. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your research shows about how we might assess soft skills like collaboration? 
Sure. And actually, we did look not only into the theoretical models, we also look into artificial intelligence and machine learning tools for detecting the best features that would predict a good uh, productive collaborative behavior. For example, in some of uh, our previous research, we identified that for a team to be successful, it's also important to negotiate to be explicit on when one has a different opinion. And it turned out that having both the sharing and the negotiating features present during a collaborative interaction is what makes a team successful. So I think this was a nice result. Are you seeing many edtech services integrate the research that you found to help assess collaboration? Oh, that's a very interesting question. So uh, with my previous team, uh, we developed a platform that would allow for the assessment of collaboration for building the proper assessment tools. Uh, With my current team at ACT Next, we are using a game in which a student interacts with a computer agent and has to, the two of them have to solve puzzles together. And the computer agent is simulating real collaborators. So sometimes the computer agent is uh, extremely friendly and helpful. Some other times is uh, difficult because we want to see how the student would actually react in those situations. So we are building at ACT Next these platforms for the measurement of collaboration. You've worked in this space for 10 years what have been the problems in assessing these skills previously? How come that it's only now that some of the more sophisticated elements of measuring collaboration are coming to fruition? Oh, this is a great question because actually collaboration has been studied for the past 60 years at least. So the main differences are that the technology allows us for capturing the processes of collaboration. What is what PICPL actually do during the collaboration? And the technology allows to do that at scale. And do you think there's a sort of standard approach to assessing collaboration which is emerging or which you expect to see become dominant in either you know, research or in applications within EdTech focused on assessment? So the one that I see that is uh, gaining ground here is, um, is an approach where we use a collaboration between one human and one computer agent. And then we have a bit more control on the computer agents uh, on simulating their behavior in specific ways that allow us to elicit the right behavior from the human. However, I want to continue to explore the human-to-human collaboration. The only problem with that part at this point is not so much the measurement, but it's more the scalability and the standardization. So for the learning perspective, having a human-to-human collaboration is much better and much more relevant. For the assessment perspective, having a human interacted with a a bit more standardized computer agent is perhaps easier to go. So I would say in the short term, we'll probably go uh, to use computer agents. In the longer term, definitely we want to include more humans. We've talked about all the variances in assessment, looking at collaboration. What are we doing with all this newfound research? So what are you finding are the, the sort of applications of the research that you're developing, that you're seeing? 
Yeah. So in my current team at ACT Next, we are developing an educational companion. This companion is supposed to help someone from pretty much and stay with someone from cradle to grave and help the person not only succeed in the academic environment, but also to build her own personality and her own strengths. So one of the assessments that ACT as a company has nowadays is one called Tessera, which is for social emotional learning skills. And we included that in our companion, and we will also include our assessments of collaboration in this companion. So all of these are part of the holistic framework that ACT developed, and it is all of these are meant to provide a, a 360 mirror of each person and help the person improve as the person matures and proceeds through uh, her personal educational journey. So in this context, to get back to your question, what are we planning to do with these results is uh, to help people become better at interacting with others and interacting with machines. And, and just a final question, how do you account for those that, you know, have definitely a place in the team, but, you know, work in a different way, perhaps are more introverted? How do we make sure that we don't unfairly dismiss their own skill set as well? Yeah, this is a very good question. And actually, that is the one of the power of observing and analyzing the process data, the data from the process of collaboration. With an oft-quoted mismatch between teaching and learning in schools and universities and practicable application in the quote real world, it is interesting to see how technologies including blockchain are moving to fill the gap with a network version of assessment and credentialing which we may see move into the K-12 space, something I'd like to explore in a future episode. But that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you to all the guests who joined. Next week, we think about what personalised learning really means and the implications of assessment innovation and student big data collection. Want to leave feedback? Tweet us at Podcast EdTech and at Christine DeSherbo or check out the Pearson podcast page at tinyurl.com forward slash Pearson Future Tech, where you can also find more content reports and insight. I'll drop that link, show notes and more at the edtechpodcast.com.